Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Alvin Tejo. And today we're going to talk about all of the events in government response to the COVID-19 crisis. Well, maybe not all of them. There are a lot of events here, but some of them at the very least, including most recently and notably this week, launching a roadmap to reopen Ontario that met with some mixed reviews to say the least. We will talk about the Liberal and NDP responses to that roadmap and how the opposition is doing based on what we know to be still some relatively favorable public sentiment towards the government. Are they seizing on something? Is that tide finally starting to turn? But first, Alexi, you and Garuma released a fantastic episode earlier this week taking listeners through the policy response with uh, Armin Mialazian and Karim Bardisi. Uh, for those of you that don't know Armin and Karim, they are experts in social policy and provided and have provided advice to governments at the most senior levels. Alexi, how did it go? What did you think? Yeah, Chris, it was a great convo. Um, they're both crazy smart people, so that, uh, I mean, it was a foregone conclusion. It would be great from the start, but uh, I always enjoy talking with those guys. Uh, Armin has had um, really an inside role with the federal response uh, compared to most people, so it was very interesting to hear her walk through the evolution of the thinking and then also her ability to step back and put into perspective how well, just the mindset around social policy and uh, and the role of government and how willing people are to fill gaps that um, that previously had not been filled because of the, as she put it, the, uh, the, the focus on growth for many, many decades has uh, pushed out any other uh, considerations about well-being and, and, and sort of other features of life. Uh, and so it was interesting to hear her talk about what this could mean for the future. It's an interesting time. Uh, and uh, what did you guys think? I love any podcast that kind of takes me, uh, it, like takes you inside government. And I thought that was like the cool thing about it. Like, I mean, kind of took you in like the how the gears turned. And I actually thought Kareem made a really good comment that I thought was so true and reflective of my time in government being that when you hit a crisis, you know, there's, there's like a billion policy units that sort of don't actually deliver anything that were sort of caught blindsided by this. And it's actually, you end up leaning on the delivery arms of government that, that actually implement strategies. So no, I thought the, I loved the sort of like indictment of, or, or sort of the criticism that was thrown on the, like the policy class of people not actually being ready before this thing started for, you know, all the things that could go wrong. All right. Well, not that this will matter too much, I think, to our audience, but we have actually shifted our recording time. We're recording in the evening, so I have a beer in hand. Uh, and <laughs> using that as fuel to dive into our first topic, the roadmap to reopen Ontario. The government launched a 13-page document on Monday outlining how it planned to reopen the economy in three distinct stages based on seeing new cases of the coronavirus decline for a period of two to four weeks. The province did not give any details on timing, but said that at stage one, we'd see some businesses open with modified work requirements and enable sort of uh, to enable continued social distancing to some extent, but perhaps less than we're seeing now. Some outdoor parks and s- small funerals would be allowed. At stage two, we're getting more businesses based on some kind of risk assessment process, which we don't have any details on, but we know that there'll be some kind of process. Um, and it may include retail and service. So I guess we're not seeing stores in uh, or regular retail service in phase one. And at stage three, we're getting all businesses, but no concerts or large sporting events. So past sort of this three-stage thing, we're still not doing really large gatherings. So perhaps more helpfully, uh, we got a sense of how the province would evaluate us moving through these stages as well, which include at the outset to get us into this plan at all, we need a two to four week decline in new cases. 
um, decreases in cases that cannot be traced, a certain buildup to a surge level of capacity in our hospital system, ongoing PPE supply for our healthcare workers, and capacity to do contact tracing uh, for 90% of patients in day one of them coming into a hospital. So that are the criteria that the medical professionals will be using to guide us through and sort of put us in different stages of this plan. Some helpful stuff, some not helpful stuff. Uh, what did you guys think of the government's announcement and uh, how do we think it's going to play? Like, what do we, what, what were your guys' big takeaways? So, I mean, my takeaway was that so far this government has done a pretty good job of setting expectations and to try and show that they're being very reasonable and very considerate considerate of, uh, uh, of, of people and businesses and timing and all that. I think they sort of missed the expectations game in this one because I think the general public and the media were expecting timelines. They were expecting, um, I guess, more of a roadmap of this equals this, and then that's when this happens, uh, especially after some of the other provinces started dropping um, those types of plans. Now, I know that it was never going to be reasonable for us to 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 give dates, um, but I think you can still set benchmarks for people to say, by this date, we're going to make a decision as to whether or not we're going to add another couple of weeks and then you know check in with us again. Uh, on the update of this in in a few weeks or something like that. Um, I I think there's a lot of parents out there who are still uh, very, very uh, unsure about what's supposed to happen in the school year. My wife and I were talking about this today on the couch about so many provinces and states have already canceled their entire school year. Why are we still sort of kidding around that we might go back to school on June 1st? And if that's going to be the truth of the matter, then why don't we just start planning the next four months now until we get back to school in September? Um, so I think they needed to set expectations a little better in terms of what they were going to announce. And I think the announcement was a little light because it was kind of, well, obviously, these are the things and this is the way you're going to do some of these things. I, it's not like you were just going to snap your fingers and everything was going to go back to normal. So. I don't know. I was kind of lukewarm on it. Yeah, I agree with that. There were pieces of it. I think, Chris, you mentioned uh, it was nice that they had some uh, very specific uh, criteria to start looking at what would uh, determine when they're going to ease public health measures. So it was nice to see them break that down into not just sort of virus numbers, but also looking at health system capacity, public health, the incidence tracking, that kind of thing. I thought the interesting thing about all these uh, metrics that they're using is how many of them are actually directly, uh, can be directly controlled by the province in that if you can increase your health system capacity in the short term, or if you can get better at reaching out to COVID-19 contacts um, more quickly, you could actually achieve some of these without necessarily having to see a decrease in the spread of the virus. Um, because a lot of these are um, things you can attack from both ends. You can you can increase your capacity. You don't just have to decrease the spread of uh, and containment of the virus. So uh, what I would have liked to see is more on the background of how they're actually going to get to these places. What are they really doing to increase their, their tracking capacity? What are they doing to increase um, some of the public health system capacity? Because I think that hasn't been uh, as front and center. So it would have been nice to see a little bit of that. Uh, behind this as well. Um, it wasn't as if they talked about students a little bit. It was sort of within the principal section, they came out strong on saying, you know, we can't open without thinking about health and safety of our children and parents and that kind of thing. And it's going to be key to to the reopening plan. Uh, but then there was really nothing in the reopening stages about it, uh, which I thought was interesting. 
there are, you know, in BC, the, the government never actually forced all of the uh, childcare centers to close. Many of them chose to close because parents pulled their kids out of childcare, but many of them remained open and the government provided uh, huge amounts of money to continue to subsidize them so that they could remain open with, with fewer students or fewer kids uh, making use of, of those childcare facilities. Uh, so, you know, there's very little here about what we're going to see on childcare in the future. There's very little here about what we're going to see on school in the future, which is, I think, too bad because those are very, very important parts of reopening. Uh, the system. And, and hopefully when it comes to schools, we can be a little bit um, uh, innovative in terms of our thinking about getting some students back to school, maybe not all students, maybe some kind of rotation period. The school year doesn't necessarily have to end at the end of June as it normally would. There are ways we could extend schooling throughout the summer. Um, so I'd like to see much more on that as well. Yeah, I tend to agree with you guys on the uh, lack of detail. I don't really know how to read that because probably you guys are like me. We've been like mainlining coronavirus news and as much of it as we can get and as soon as we can get it. And like, I'm not sure how true that is for everyone. And if like people are looking at the government to confirm details, you know, there were some new details in here. And I think it is different, you know, hearing a public health expert on a radio say well on you know a random radio show saying hey you know we're not gonna be able to go back to work it's not gonna be normal right away versus hearing it come from your provincial government as sort of the plan so i agree it was detail light um the details that were there i kind of thought were like somewhat helpful and the fact that they come from the government is helpful just in and of itself so I don't dock them like too many points for for that but the thing that you said alexi about the factors that the government control, I think is really key because like the thing that worried me the most in this document were the claims that it made around testing. And it says that on January 25th, that was when they began rapid ramp up of testing and says that the metric that they're going to be using to evaluate is ongoing testing. They, they didn't really specify a target for increasing testing. And considering that is like the key, most important variable in, in like being able to start moving past this and the fact that Ontario is so far behind on testing, it didn't give me any comfort that they see an end of the road here. And I, 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 like, I know there are people working on testing in Ontario and they, but like the fact that there were no new details about it here did worry me. Uh, there was another weird line in there about shifting to new and other ways of contact tracing. Contact tracing, of course, being, you know, if you come to the hospital, the hospital then need with coronavirus, the hospital needs to like find every person that you've interacted with in the last two weeks. And I kind of wonder like, what new and other ways of contract tracing refers to. It's kind of a weird phrasing. And, you know, whenever there's sort of like loosey-goosey phrasing in government documents that sort of alludes to a new way of doing things, I always, you know that a gazillion people edited this and like, why did it land up there? So yeah, I, I think it's kind of mad. There are a couple of things. I didn't really tell me that the government has any greater handle on the most important pieces than it did, but it also, I thought was interesting and helpful in some other respects. There's, there's two other things that, um, before we get into the, the politics of it, that, that I think I was disappointed by. I, I understand the urge and the need for the government to really, to some extent, dumb this down. Uh, but I think the three-stage approach does a disservice because it, it, it creates the impression that this is much more linear than it really probably will be. And they, they admit so that much in the text where they talk about how, you know, after each two to four week period, the chief mental health officer is going to look and maybe we have to reapply or tighten certain things. Maybe we'll maintain status quo. Maybe we'll proceed to the next stage. But this thing could be much more of a roller coaster ride. Uh, and the way they've laid it out, it gives this sense, the sense that sort of, okay, well, every two to four weeks, we're going to look at it, which means between 
six and 12 weeks from now, we're going to have reopened. And I think that's highly, highly unlikely. And, and I think it's too bad that, that it was dumbed down to that extent. It would have, I don't know if there was a way to, to think about this more as a more of a continuum kind of approach rather than these sort of set stages. Um, and then the other piece of it is that it, it, it tends to lump the different parts of our society that have been closed down uh, into sort of a monolithic uh, idea. So when we say we're going to gradually reopen, uh, we're going to sort of gradually reopen everything at generally the same pace. And I think that also is probably too simplistic considering the realities. There are pieces of society that can be reopened much more quickly than others. It doesn't make sense for people who are working from home, for example, right now to be going back to work uh, early on in this reopening uh, when they could continue to work from home. Uh, whereas there are other parts of the economy that really need to be prioritized in terms of reopening. And then there's things like parks, which do make a mention in this. Uh, there's a lot of talk about at which stage they're going to open certain uh, public places. Uh, but we've seen in different provinces very different uh, approaches to the closing of parks. And in those provinces where they have not closed all parks in a mandatory way, the way they did in Ontario, the way they did in Quebec, uh, people's use of parks has actually gone up compared to the baseline before the pandemic. And they haven't necessarily seen negative impacts as a result of that. So in BC, for example, um, they didn't force all the parks in British Columbia to close. And uh, park usage has gone up slightly based on some of the Google data that was released at the end of March. Uh, and BC still managed to uh, rapidly bend the curve on this thing. So to me, that suggests it's not, you know, it's not a necessarily causal, but it suggests a correlation at least that maybe we don't need to be as concerned about park usage as we do about public transit usage or about um, people working in close quarters in uh, the food industry, for example. Uh, so to me, I just it's it it dumbs it down a little bit too much, given how complex these considerations are. And I would have liked to see them at least nod to some of those complexities a little bit more. Well, and I think what you're saying, Alexi, is they've missed a bit of an opportunity as well, right? I think politically speaking, people are looking for some sort of hope, right? What's what's next? What could we look forward to potentially, right? If if parks seems to be something that we could potentially open sooner, then give people sort of that hope that then, you know, maybe we'll expand to to certain restaurants or to certain industries and give people some sort of idea of how this is going to roll out. Yeah, we basically landed with stage one, some, stage two, more, stage three, <laughs> even more. Like that's, that's the plan. Um, I actually also got to say it gave me such like a cabinet office vibe where it's like cabinet office loves a good red yellow green sorting mechanism like something about that is like baked into the culture organizational culture of the way the ops the ontario public service communicates there is one last important point i think on this that i want to make though i'm sure they felt pressure from other provinces who are starting to release their reopening roadmaps quebec i think is taking a particularly risky approach in uh, setting dates and they're doing it on the assumption that most of the problem is in long-term care homes and they can begin because of that they can begin to reopen the rest of the economy more rapidly and i'm really glad that this sort of sent a signal that the ford government is not taking this they're they're being they're going to be a little bit more cautious than that and i think that in like the polling that um has shown up on how people's attitudes towards this like that will play well and if particularly if we see things start to go sideways in quebec um they will get credit for uh, a go slow approach which is still supported by i think you know close to 80 percent of people so i i think it's definitely a safe space for this government to be in um i know that you know Stephen del duca has told him 
has told the premier, you know, we won't criticize you by doing things too much to try and keep Ontarians safe. Um, so I think that's sort of a safe space for the government to, to feel like they're going to be in. And, you know, it is risky. The premier said today that uh, he does not want neighboring um, Canadians from other provinces coming through Ontario, despite their lifting some stay-at-home orders that uh, that they might be doing right now. So, you know, we're still locked down, and and I think Ontarians overwhelmingly support that. Yeah. So actually, that's a good segue into the opposition response to the roadmap, because I think it's been really interesting to watch. It has been the first time that I've heard a united negative response to something that the government has announced. Um, and I think we've seen the opposition kind of turn on um, turn on the taps on criticism a little bit here. So uh, much like us, the NDP and the Liberals both called it vague. The NDP pointed to a lack of testing and workplace inspections and that those would be key to opening the province. Uh, the Liberals called it Doug Ford's latest publicity stunt and harshly criticized it as a vague outline of a vague outline, all words, no plan. But they pointed to the lack of specificity on which businesses should reopen when and the protocols that would keep Ontarians safe. Um, Stephen uh, Del Duca also released in the Toronto Sun um, an announcement for an Ontario Pandemic Resiliency Hub, which would be an organization that would produce face masks and gloves, have researchers do broad-based testing, overhaul long-term care, scale up testing, create contract tracing, build out broadband province-wide, and this was my favorite part of it, use artificial intelligence to model how to best plan for future crises. So I'll note that... Uh, Earlier um, this month, Stephen Del Duca took a shot at Minister Christine Elliott on the situation in long-term care homes. We're clearly going into attack mode. Uh, we're maybe shifting a little bit back to nor the normal acrimony of Ontario politics. Um, how do we think the Liberals and the NDP are managing this um, and on pushing, uh, managing this sort of slide back into normalcy? There, I, I saw some great tweets from, by some uh, Ontario reporters who noted the date. Today is the day that Ontario politics returned to normal <laughs> when uh, when Stephen took that shot, which I think was justified. I mean, the minister should have probably known those things beforehand, but I don't know. I didn't, she didn't really get a chance to explain herself right then and there. The, in terms of the, the calling for the resiliency hub, I mean, it kind of sounds like the uh, Obama administration's sort of... National Security Council Directorate for Global Health Security and Biodefense to prepare for future pandemics, which um, uh, the current president eliminated. So, you know, it's not a bad thing to have to have those <laughs> to have those things in place. I think it might be something that the government might have done anyway. So it could still be constructive uh, constructive advice. Yeah, uh, I, I think I had a uh, a little bit of a less rosy reaction to the pandemic resiliency hub concept, not that it's necessarily a bad idea. I just don't know that um, what Ontarians really want to hear right now is that uh, we need a new government agency and that that's going to solve all our problems, especially given just the huge list, as Chris, as you listed off, of things that this hub would somehow handle across, you know, our food system and our health system uh, and, and others. Uh, so I'm not sure that it's, I mean, I think it, it could be good policy, but I'm, I'm just not sure that it's the best uh, political talking point right now. Uh, the parts of the op-ed to me uh, came off a little technocratic and I think people are still looking for uh, a response that's a little bit more reflecting their feelings and, and is more about tone still at this point than a real policy response. Uh, and so I think that's probably a problem that's going to plague both the parties moving forward, which is 
that Doug Ford just is still striking the right tone overall. And so it's hard to be too negative uh, and push back on him uh, on some of the policy specifics. I also don't think Ontarians are really paying too much attention to the opposition parties, uh, and that's going to continue for some time as well. So I, I overall, even missteps right now, I don't think anyone's going to remember what particularly Andrea Horvath or, uh, or Stephen Del Duca said uh, this month, you know, even a few months down the road from now. So I, uh, to some extent, I think it's good that people are taking this opportunity to try to, you know, we got to raise profile and the liberals have a long road back. Uh, but I also think the, the stakes are pretty low right now. And it's a, a time for the Ontario liberals to try to um, try out some different tactics and see what see what seems to be working and um, for Stephen to try to sort of get on his feet and um, and get used to the cut and thrust that he wants to uh, project uh, as, a, as a leader of the opposition or a leader of the the Liberal Party. I, I think they're also trying to get ahead of certain things, right? Like if you see where this is trending and you see the fact that the vast majority of deaths in Ontario and in Canada are going to be in long-term care homes, and you see the fact that Del Duca called for an inquiry for uh, the long-term care system um, and sort of trying to potentially peg early that um, the Conservative government could have done more to prevent uh, some of these things from happening. And you can even see, I think Andrea Horvath said a couple of things around, you know, in terms of the response timeline, if we knew that this was happening early in March and then into April, why didn't we act uh, much, much sooner to try and save more lives in long-term care facilities? Um, and I think the most damning numbers that are coming out of the government themselves are, are the, what was it, six inspections in the last 18 months in terms of long-term care facilities that had to be complaint-based. Um, so I think the parties are going to try to get ahead of that, uh, basically hedging their bets to see where this is going to end up and being able to assign blame and say, look, we've been saying this since uh, since months ago. How do you guys feel about the, the risk to the Liberals uh, on the long-term care issue just because uh, with the McGinty and Wynn governments being in power for so long and not having uh, done a ton themselves to solve the long-term care issue? Um, is that more for Telegram for the NDP or do you think the Liberals will be able to make it stick as well? So that's that's a, a point that I really wanted to uh, get into, Alexi, because I, I think that there's some real risk for the Liberals in particular um, in their response uh, on both the long-term care piece. I mean, when uh, Stephen Del Duca initially launched his attack, the first people to snap back were not the Conservatives, but the NDP, who basically pointed out through their critic that this is something that we'd raised in the legislature with you over the course of your 15-year government, you know, a little bit rich coming now. And I, I thought that was a pretty stinging response because the NDP can point to a pretty consistent track record of pointing to issues in long-term care facilities. The other piece that I think is a huge risk for the Liberals is on testing. When you look at the roots of where Ontario's testing problem comes from, the Globe had a really good overview of it. It comes from way before this crisis was on anyone's radar and before Ford even tried cutting public health, the budget was frozen and uh, successive annual reports pointed to a testing testing pressures that were mounting in public health Ontario. And we have a decentralized system that doesn't allow lab resources to be shared quickly. So the reason that we have this testing backlog at the beginning was because we had some existing pressure in public health Ontario 
and very little inbuilt ability for the labs to be able to coordinate to each other. So over the course of February, a like a huge amount of infrastructure needed to be built relatively quickly by the government to basically meet the demand. And that was a problem that built beginning with the Harris government, over continued with the liberals, and you know Ford made it worse by implementing cuts and actually uh, like, you know, and I don't think we should be too kind to Ford here either. I mean, the, almost the entire senior management team, including Peter Donnelly was going to leave at the beginning of, you know, basically up until the COVID crisis came into full steam. So, you know, there was, it was an organization that was already troubled. And I think for the liberals in particular, uh, going on the, even if they are logical, good attack points, you got to be watching your flank because, and your, your, your record, because it's, it can come back to bite you pretty quickly. I, I don't know. I, I thought the NDP attacking the liberals, I mean, obviously, it's fair game. They can do what they want. But they seem to have been equally as interested in attacking previous liberal governments as they were the current conservative government who can actually do something about it. Um, I think you'll always see governments try to pass blame to previous governments. That's every government has done it. Every government will continue doing it. I think the, the liberals right now need to add this on to a you know, maybe the system, yes, we all will acknowledge the system wasn't perfect. But moving on, it's been however many years this government has had the chance to do something about it, and they have it, and they've exacerbated the, the problem and have made it significantly worse. And you just try to talk about that. And I think if you're good at your messaging, you'll be able to sort of change change the tone of that. Yeah. And, and I, I do think like if there is a message of, I know I was around in the last government, you know, from Stephen Del Duca, there is room in all politics for acknowledgement of uh, previous uh, previous mistakes and for, you know, previous like it, I don't think it needs to like it necessarily means the liberals should not attack on testing and um, uh and long-term care homes, uh, like there is, uh, it is more than just good politics. It's like the like the right thing to do. That's where the government is falling behind and should be focusing on. And it's the proper role of opposition to um, hold the government to account for the things that matter. And those things sure as shit matter. I, I think where, where the liberal response has fallen a little short for me is just the vociferousness of the tone. Uh, like the, at first, first calling it like a publicity stunt when it was really, a, you know, a vague but still legitimate government announcement they have to make seven announcements a week right they got to come up with something exactly um like I, I, that's a problem that i i you know i you know as a former government worker could could relate to yeah i i think like maybe the answer here is is in tone like there's a fine line between the helpful opposition i mean the hub i think is an interesting idea putting things on the table for consideration is good if you're if it sort of seems like you're super excited to be the attack dog i'm not sure how well that plays in this moment and that's all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening so we have actually not 100% decided what the order of our pods will be next week, so I'll keep the pod topics as a fun surprise for you, but we will be coming back with some podcasts next week. Just want to say, if you haven't yet listened to Armin and Kareem, this week's earlier episode on the COVID-19 policy response, it was a fantastic episode that Grima and Alexi put together. Alvin and I talked to Mike Schreiner of the Green Party. Uh, Sam and I talked to Liz Stewart of the Ontario Catholic Teachers Association. We, I think we've had a pretty good run these past couple weeks. I'm pretty proud of it. Ontario Loud is Sam Andrew, Grumatel Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, and myself, Chris Martin, Aisha Anwar, and Harmon Muddy are our volunteers. They are so amazing. They do our research, they do some of our communications. 
We love them. We will see you next week. Have a great weekend, all. Stay safe.